God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for your ministry to us with the finitude of our minds and we know we're up against it in a lot of subjects and we'd like to have your guidance and your apostles and prophets lead us through things. Your son, we'd ask that you would give us um, that direction in your son's name. Amen. Okay. For some reason, we're in 2 Corinthians. Now, we're, I'd like to let you in, in on my, the, the process of, of, of how things were formulated so that you know not just what I've been thinking about regarding this passage, but what, what brought it to pass. I've been in a number of discussions lately where, maybe because the people knew the Revelation Bible study was coming up, and so they were talking about the eschaton, which is how smarty pants people refer to it, um, or they, they uh, want to know about afterlife, you know, talking a conversation about cremation or burial. Um, we have conversations about heaven and hell and in between. And uh, some people have been talking about all these unknowns, these things that are just sort of, uh, how does this play into the Christian orthodoxy or standard views, if there are any. And I was reading in Second Corinthians uh, down in chapter 5, it's down at the bottom of the column, and there were some strange, we'll just call them some strange verses. Verses that make you feel that the thing you heard in Sunday school might not be right. We were in a discussion the other night. Uh, Taylor was uh, uh, brought up the uh, last battle. Remember the and everybody always has this. Emmeth, the Callerman guy who goes to Narnia in heaven. And you go, what's up with that? Who does C.S. Lewis think he is giving away salvation so freely? Almost like he was gracious. But now, you could disagree, agree with C.S. Lewis on the point, but those are the questions that were rattling about in my skull. And we'll get to those passages, but because that was the direction of my thinking, these questions that Christians of all sorts of stamps. We're going to have a baptism next Sunday, and frankly, it's going to be like a Southern Baptist baptism. Because we believe in believer baptism for the symbolizing the death, burial, and resurrection, baptism of the Holy Ghost, passing from death to life for the person being baptized. We're big on spirit baptism, symbolized by water baptism. But we know that the church all over the countryside has every sort of different views. They baptize infants for salvation. They baptize infants for dedication. They baptize not infants who aren't really saved, who said they were saved in youth group. You know, they do it all, you know, all sorts of different things. Baptism for membership of the church. We know that Christians... And I'm talking about not just Chris and Dumb, because you know my view on that, but my 
my view of real Christians who love Jesus Christ have got different views. A lot because of what it says in the Bible. So that was by the frame of my mind when I started reading through this passage and pushing back in the context to try to get a place to start. Second Corinthians 4, verse 1, at the very top of the page. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the likeness of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For it is a God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, what I was thinking, because I was thinking of this perplexity of Christian mind, that we can't seem to agree, and then we don't play well with each other when we disagree, how do we, how do the apostles who don't, have you noticed you're reading through the Bible, and you've heard that in Christian circles, the Trinity is a big deal. Now, I'm a Trinitarian, so no fears there. But they don't talk about it. Ever. Don't, just don't, don't mention it. The word Trinity is in the Bible. But they don't talk about it. They also don't talk about baptism that much. I mean, you've got those scriptures I gave you, but it's an aside. It speaks of it as something people already know. It's not delineated like a textbook or a book of church order. The disciples, the apostles who wrote to us, have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways and to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. Now, what do we have in Christian circles? Let's grant that there are a bunch of people who don't know their butt from a hole in the ground and they make mistakes in how they read the Bible. They have honest mistakes and honest differences. But there are also people who are not just out there representing, say, Satanism or representing atheism or representing some ism that isn't Christianity, but people inside Christianity who have disgraceful and underhanded ways who are cunning and they tamper with God's work. To what end? What generally happens when someone is wrong and they want to be believed to be right, their cunning and their sophistry, we'll call it sophistry rather than rhetoric or their logic, their sophistry is to build up your belief in what they just said by how they said it. Now, I, I have a susceptibility, I'll admit. I like a good speaker. 
I like a good speaker with an English accent. I believe everything he says, just automatically. I call it a weakness. You know, I, I, if, if some guy came along uh, to our church who was from England and wanted to preach here, I'd say, sure, go ahead. Well, but I'm an atheist. Oh, no, go ahead. Because you have an English accent. Of course you're right. Now, we know that we're susceptible to various kinds of cunning. We know that, have you ever been in a discussion where, well, Roy and I were talking about this earlier, about uh, people who are slowly watching what they thought was a definite, inarguable position slowly go to pieces in front of them. Have you ever been in those situations where someone so desperate to keep the position they held already actually tamper with God's word? Quote a verse out of context, that's tampering. Changing the meaning of a word so that it will agree with their position. They don't want to give things up. Now what I'm suggesting to you is sometimes behind all of that is not just the arrogance or the conceit of man the desire to be right, this pressure to have certitude in a world where certitude has not been offered on a lot of things and it is not possible given your finitude. And I wanted to share with you in terms of what does Paul, marching through these two chapters of Corinthians, kind of gives us a sense of where how he deals with that. Look what he says. And we've renounced any disgraceful means of getting, say it was certitude that would be, you're only, unless I can be absolutely certain. Years ago, I may have shared this before, when I was teaching at the discipleship school with a variety of other local Bible teachers, um, one of the guys came out and says, you know, so-and-so just taught something different than you taught. I don't think that should be, that's not right. I said, well, yeah, one of us is, one of us or both of us are wrong. He said, no, no, you, you should agree to teach only one thing at this school. Because he wanted certitude. He didn't want to hear another view. I said, well, don't you get a chance to decide what it is the scripture says when you hear so-and-so's argument and then somebody else's argument? Now, he wanted certitude very badly. And some people don't feel... Well, they feel Christianity, since it's based on faith, it's based on how strongly you believe, how strongly you believe in Jesus Christ. And that becomes propositional. And if I can get certainty that Jesus Christ was alive, that he died, that you see Christians doing apologetics about the resurrection of Christ, look, it's the story. Deal with it. I don't have to prove it to you. You don't want it to be true? Fine. You don't want it to be true. But there is no way you can prove that Abraham Lincoln ever lived, let alone Jesus Christ ever was raised from the dead. You can't do it. That's not the nature of thought. Everything before you now is just inferential. What do we look to? Now, there are many things that we can show all the evidence for. I could show you all the evidence in the photographs of this guy called Abe Lincoln. 
And pretty soon you're going, yeah, I probably did exist, okay. And this Gettysburg Address thing, it didn't show up in the 1960s. Okay, we got records of it. We got his fingerprints on things. But people want certainty, and they're susceptible to certainty peddlers. There's, there's, a, there's a category of literature called systematic theologies. May their names be blotted out. I worry even about the whatever systematic theologies out there that I agree with entirely, I'm a little worried about it. Because certainty, certainty is something that doesn't build your faith. It replaces it. Well, everybody proved it. All the guys in the bishop line of bishops believe this. You don't believe this? How come you don't believe this? Look at what Paul says. But by open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to what? To every man's forensic investigation? No, to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We're being measured a different way and the truth is being measured in you. You're stating the truth. You say, well, well Evan, then do you know if Jesus was killed? Well, yeah. But as soon as you say, you have to prove that he was killed, certainly I could look at Tacitus and it says he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. But people say, well, I don't believe Tacitus. Okay, fine. I'm telling you the truth. And I'm commending it to you in light of your conscience viewpoint. The gospel is veiled to some people, verse 3, verse 4. The God of this world has blinded their eyes so they won't see. What? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the likeness of God. They won't see the truth because, not because they don't have the rational capability. They've got some other blindness. Now, looking at this in terms of what certitude, you might be a, um, the kind of personality that easily arrives at certitude. You know, I might be one of those people that I just, I believe easily. What I believe, I don't, you know, wrestle with doubts and, and the like. Other people wrestle with those things. Um, but no matter where you are, no matter who you are, the perplexity of life is something that faces everybody. You have a relative die, close relative, someone you're very fond of. Some people are out there cursing at God in the backyard. Other people are rejoicing, other people are weeping, other people are what? How can you look at this one thing that we, that we can't call someone back easily? You've been dead for two years and we can call you back and raise your hand and say, hey, what's it like? On the other side? They get those people who come back, I saw a bright light at the end of a tunnel. And nobody believes them. I don't believe them. I just think they're seeing things. What do we do? How? We all have the same perplexity. What's the point of living? Why am I, al why am I alive? You know, I was, I was talking to someone about young people, 
you know, young people. You know what I, my views of young people. And an awful lot of life is dealt with and could, uh, uh, helped along in the youth of a person in America. They've got all sorts of lessons they go to and all sorts of events and they don't know they exist and all of a sudden they hit a certain age and they know they exist. Suddenly who they are is important to them and they need to discover who they are. And all the questions that their parents never thought they could give them pat answers for, but you know, why, why did Jesus have to die? Did he, you know, why, why was it righteous for Jesus to be punished for my sin? What, what's going on here? Or whatever the question is, and the parents go, I don't know, I just told you what the Bible's lesson said for that age group and where you were. We have perplexities. We know that veiled people and blind people and deceiving people, right? You have disgraceful, underhanded individuals who twist the word of God and sometimes they're feeding you confidence that you can't have. And I've heard enough false apologetics for the Christian faith to write a book Remember a family sitting at my dinner table. I did not correct this man because his wife and children were sitting there. And it would be like, eh, that didn't happen. He was going off on the supposed using of NASA's computers to track time backwards and find the missing day of Joshua. <clears throat> Can't be done, was never done. Okay? But it was a common myth in Christian circles, kind of like Sasquatch. And you heard it, saw it various places. Because someone lied at some point and someone believed that that was actually a half an hour's thought about the nature of time. If you believe in time, even if you believe in time, you're not going to be able to track time backwards. It's called a calendar. Don't need NASA's computers. Like they could go back into time and find the gap. People believed it. Sat there looking, looking at him like, oh man, you got to be kidding me. He was a teacher at a Christian school. We've got this perplexity and we would like to replace it with certitude. Sometimes we make grave errors in finding certitude. Grave errors. And then when somebody spots it and proves you wrong, somebody spots it and proves you wrong, you're just, your whole faith is shaken because you were connecting your life with Jesus Christ to your certainty. How can I be certain anymore? Verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now, he's talking about something he has. He has the truth, and he commends himself in the argument to people's consciences. View us with your conscience. To show that the transcendent power belongs to God and not to us. So this is why we're commending you to look at us so that what we say will be measured, not in its... Yeah, we're saying we're certain Jesus Christ was 
killed and buried and raised from the dead on the third day and ascended to be with the Father. Yes, that's what we claim. But we want you to examine us in the eyes of your conscience. We want you to see the things that God has done show the transcendent power belongs to God because we are earthen vessels. The Christians are just regular people who put their pants on one leg at a time like everyone else and get sick with the flu and throw up like anyone else, have problems, have family members die, have car issues. We are just like regular people. We're earthen vessels, but we have the transcendent power of God to be viewed in their conscience. The question... We are afflicted in every, not the question, the statement. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, and that was the word that sort of jumped out at me. Perplexed. Yeah, go ahead, what? Let's go. What's going on? But not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. What I want you to think about is, who are you in the perplexity? What have you done with perplexity? Because, boy, that's, that's certainly what shakes out, isn't it? If you were to say, Ever other people's, not my own, your own conscience judges you too, but other people's conscience is invited to judge you. And you say, what do I do with the perplexity? Kind of like we've talked about before regarding the grace of God and the law of God. We say, what do you do when the lights are out and the law and order is faded away? Do you become Fury Road? Do you become, you know, driving fast because nobody is going to check on you? What are you when you face perplexity? Does your mind automatically go to the denial of God? You say, well, I have doubt. Somebody, I can't stand this. Somebody comes at you with, I have doubts. Oh, do you? What do you plan on doing with them, the doubts? Because it sounds like you have got a plan already when you say you have doubts. Which means I plan to reject everything Christian. Because I have doubts. Not I plan to seek God because I have doubts. What do you do with the perplexity? We will never, we will never, you will, you know, I've got comfortable side definitions of best I can do in a circumstance for certain theological issues. Happy to chat with you about them. They are not absolutely true because I believe them. They're not absolutely true because they, they sum up what I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about. Because I know that there are good arguments for other positions. We want to show that the transcendent power belongs to God and not to us. That in our perplexity, in a world of blind, veiled people, that the thing that, is, that we've come to is the death of Jesus Christ, that the life of Jesus Christ may be manifested in our bodies. That's what their conscience and our conscience is looking for. The life of Jesus Christ. Because of the belief in the death of Jesus Christ. So that's what we declare. 
I don't have to prove it. I'm just going to declare it. Happy to argue with people about history. Happy to argue with people about philosophy and, 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 and r- rational arguments for the existence of God. But, you know, when you toss those things out, Roy and I were talking at the, the coffee break, so much of it is, all I'm doing is, not, I'm not proving Jesus Christ to you. I'm proving what sort of person you are to me. Because I'm making a conscience judgment of who I'm talking to. And I see what they're doing. You could declare Jesus Christ. One of the best arguments, and you've heard me mention this one before, is C.S. Lewis's argument from reason in the book Miracles. Another book was written about that book, or about that argument, called C.S. Lewis's Dangerous Idea. Because this is unique, in a sense, to C.S. Lewis. And uh, another philosopher writing a short work on how amazing this argument is for the existence of God. And all you do when you bring it up, it's like, you know, shooting fish in a barrel. It's almost too easy. And you can smile to yourself, but you're only, believe me, they won't believe you. And so what, what have you learned? Not to not use arguments, because the benefit of the argument is to say, I know what you do with the perplexity of life. You fall back on yourself and what you want. And what you want isn't this. You don't want a God. You don't want a Savior. You as hell don't want eternal life. If you want the life of Jesus, manifest in you the message of the death of Jesus. As it says in verse 12, verse 11, For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal bodies, our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. What we're about, instead of running around debating atheists, we're about living what Christ gave us. Because our perplexity has this to go do an end run around the objections of the lost. They have nothing evil to say of us. Their conscience bears witness. We commend ourselves to every man's conscience. Can you do that? Can you leave here and go, yeah, I can walk downtown Main Street, Moscow, and commending myself to every man's conscience. Not just my own, not just, well, I feel I did the right thing. Well, did everybody else feel you did the right thing? Are you willing to live with everybody else's assessment of you? Trapped in this mortal situation, but this is what we have. Finitude, mortality, lack of information. We don't understand the whole argument. We don't know what it read. Drew asked the other night, he and Lydia were over, and he was asking, what do you think uh, will be our automatic first bit of knowledge? Going to glory. And I said, well, you know, we've had the Bible a long time. Wouldn't it be great if we suddenly just knew exactly what every passage meant? what the deal was, what he was saying, absolutely. And you'd have to go, and I was wrong about 80% of what I thought. We have these limits. 
We pursue the death of Christ because we pursue the life of Christ. And the idea that you say, I am something of God, the grace of God manifest more than the grace of God proved. Verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith as he who wrote, I believed and so I spoke, we too believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase with thanksgiving to the glory of God, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed every day. For the slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Because we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe, basically. This mortal world has limitations. We would like to have, we think that because I can tap this piece of wood, I am confident I don't have to exercise very much faith at all that my sensations related the truth to me. What I saw, what I touched, what I felt. We would like our faith to be that kind of certain. The non-Christians come, where is your God now? I don't see Jesus we went up into space and we didn't see heaven. Okay, right. And Christians sort of grappling with dimensional theory so they can still have their faith. We're about unseen things. That's just the nature of our lives. We are looking at things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient. <coughs> The thing when you say something is transient means that it's it's mortal, it's leaving, it's falling apart, isn't what is real. One of the things that I really enjoyed about Narnia when it happens in Last Battle is when they recognize that where they have gotten to is actually Narnia just more real that everything to remember Narnia being, which seemed so wonderful and so real, was this on steroids. Narnia turned up to 11. You've seen that kind of lighting sometimes on the Palouse, where late light and every hill looks like it's, it's it, a, a, a wave in a sea, basically. And you sort of know that seeing things more acutely would would move you that direction. The things mortal are leaving us. They're transient. They're fading away. You don't get to keep those. Those are the things that we rest our true belief on. I can touch it. I can feel it. I can see it. And it's going away. And the, 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 the doubt should be applied to the, to the physical world. For we know, verse 1 of chapter 5, that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 
Here indeed we groan and long to put on our heavenly dwelling. So remember who you are. In this perplexity, in this in-between, I have a soul and I have a physical relationship with the world. I have these temptations to try to get certitude. I have questions I can't seem to answer. But we know certain things. We have we have the death of Jesus so the life of Jesus will be lived. We have Christ manifest in us so that other men's consciences would see Christ at the important part. See Christ um, in us. But we still have this here indeed we groan and long to put on our heavenly dwelling so that by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we sigh with anxiety. Does this sound like anything to you? Well, besides life. Um, it sounds like Romans 8. Paul makes the same argument. He talks about the creation groans, and then we, who have the first fruits, groan, and then the Spirit intercedes with us with groans too deep for words, because we don't know how to pray regarding our life eternal. We don't have certainty. It's not streets of gold. It's not a new Jerusalem. We've only got images, symbols. We can't get at it. We don't know what the eternal and the transcendent look like. We does not yet appear what we shall be like. But we know that when we see him as he is, we shall be like him. Where, we, where do you place your faith? Your perplexity in not knowing. Does it find a new path about what you know? So that you think about God made manifest in you, apparent to conscience. <clears throat> Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. I want to look at a passage like this and say, what does the apostle offer? What he says he believes, we go, okay, yeah, I believe that too. Where does he say the proof resides? Where the witness occurs? And what the assurance to you, the guarantee, he just gave you a guarantee. You ever look at the small print on guarantees? This guarantee is null and void if you use it. You have to not use this product, and it has to break independent of your use. Um, I always realize that if you unscrewed the, the case to look to see if you could fix it, you voided the warranty. I could understand that. But we've been given a guarantee. And we live in a world full of perplexity and we don't have all the answers and someone could throw a nice theological question on your table. What happens to the soul after life? What is the soul? What is the trinity of God? What is blah blah blah? Say, where's what am I guaranteed? Where am I told? The, the thing that I really want, do I really want an ontological certitude about all the answers I affirm or do I want the life of Jesus? I believe in the death of Jesus so that I can have the life of Jesus. The guarantees I have been given are things that are that redound to the, you might say, evidence to the conscience. 
So we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith. Look at that. We know. We walk by faith, not by sight. That's how we know. Is that we don't know by mortal things. We know by God's guarantee, God's conscience given us, what he cleansed us in, and what we really, really, really want. We're of good courage, and we would rather be away from... Look at this and that. We would rather... Would you? Would you? Rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I can remember back when uh, the Southern California Church, uh, Calvary Chapel and all that, and they had that Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, yeah, Maranatha music, and everybody, you know, St. Paul's going, you know, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, you know. Uh, and everybody going, yeah, yeah, I really, I really hope he comes in my lifetime. I really hope he comes. Right when I can't enjoy life anymore. At about 85. Then I don't want to die. I want the Lord to return and ruin everybody else's life. As long as he waits long enough not to ruin my own. Stop saying, hold it, hold it. Do I? Would I rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord? Would I? So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. What does the perplexity produce in you? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive good or evil according to what he has done in the body. Certain things, certain. We know that we're, while we're here, we can't be there. We know we don't walk by sight, but by faith. We know our courage is based on this desire that our perplexity be answered this way. And we know that we will be judged according to what we've done. That's what a judgment would be, right? According to what he has done in the body. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Going back to Dwight, am I an apologist that needs to make no apology? If you can't say Jesus Christ is Lord and died for the lost and there's one path to God and have everybody go, I kind of I believe him because his life, her life. This is what they're, they're like this. We commend ourselves to their conscience. The life of Jesus is in us, not the doctrine of Jesus. We know the fear of the Lord and we persuade men. Look at what he says, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Once again, he's asking the saints to judge him. We commend ourselves to every man's conscience, up in chapter 4, and now to the Christian conscience, says what he is as a minister of the gospel is also conscience measured. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you a cause to be proud of us. So that you may be able to answer those who pride themselves in a man's position and not on his heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. If we're crazy, it's for God. If we're not crazy, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we are convinced that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. Now, this is where the passage that I made I caused me to land here. 
We're convinced the love of Christ is the controlling element because we're convinced. Okay. Remember that. The love of Christ controls you because you're convinced. Not the ability to beat anybody in an argument because you're convinced you know all the arguments and you can slap them silly. The love of Christ controls you because you're convinced. Because you were convinced because you dealt with the perplexity of life in choosing righteousness and you only found it in the death of Jesus Christ and you only found it in the life of Jesus Christ. But then he says that one has died for all. What? Yeah, we like that. And those of us who are of the Arminian or uh, free will persuasion like any passages that talk about Jesus Christ dying for all men. But again, that's just a hobbyist view of theology. But then he says, therefore, all have died. What? Suddenly that steps into saying something, not just that he died for all, where Jesus died on the cross and, and offered grace to everyone, but not everyone takes it. He says, no, 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 no. He died for all, therefore, in some measure, all have died. You're saying to yourself, well, what do you mean, Evan? Uh, I'm not telling you. Because... Paul was always dealing with perplexity in the measurement of things. He didn't, he said, I, I know this is true. I groan inwardly. He says, I do not know how to pray as I ought. The Spirit intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. St. Paul didn't know how to pray as he ought. How has all, how have all died? And he died for all that those that live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You're back on track again with Christianity. Okay, those that live are distinction from those that die, but it says that all these sinners, everyone, he died for all, therefore all have died. And I'm not here in this passage to tell you what in heaven's name he means. Because... Your perplexity is a measure of you. What, what are you like? That's a really tough question, Evan. I'd much rather have you tell me all the true things with absolutely certain arguments so that I would have no excuse but be a Christian. Well, Jesus Christ doesn't want you. Thank you very much. Jesus Christ doesn't want someone who's looking for a way to produce a doubt that would allow them to do what they... But hold it, if you had a doubt, you know which direction you want to be. You want the righteousness. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once regarded Christ from a human point of view, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. 
hold it. Once again, strange clause, doesn't fit my, my model. Just like he, all have died, all have been reconciled, or God has not counted their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So, something is going on that, that's spoiling my t- tidy categories. So we're ambassadors for Christ. We're making, we're preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified because for the souls that want the righteousness of God, it's the greatest message they ever heard. And every doubt and every curiosity that descends on them, they're in discussions with other people who share that perplexity and share that pursuit, and they're thrilled with every plausible way of looking at it that would bring up the life of Jesus Christ in them. Because they want that versus disgraceful, underhanded, manipulative theologizing to get you on the right side. We beseech you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So if there's anything behind that confusion about whether or not people don't have their trespasses counted against them and have died in the death of Christ, even though they're not Christians, we're still about reconciliation. Our perplexity looks to gain that reconciliation with God. And lastly, the perplexity looks to gain the righteousness of God. Because you're going to do something you're looking for an opportunity. I don't know if I can believe you anymore. You ever have a, be in a relationship, romantic relationship, where, where you told her you were going to the store and you went to shoot hoops with your friends and she finds out, I don't know if I can trust you anymore. And you, you look at her like, yeah, I, yeah, I lied to you, but man, you don't seem to want, you're looking for an opportunity out, aren't you? I can't trust you anymore. And not, and I really want to. I'm going to work, I'm, because I want this more than anything. We're going to figure a way, a, a way around this. We're going to find out answers that, that promote the good. We're finding and looking for answers that promote the good because we're about the reconciliation of man with God and the righteousness of God in us. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. Keep us in pursuit of you. Keep us living out the life that is easily demonstrable in the conscience examination of the rest of the world. They can look at us and see the good of your son. We'd ask that that would be true in our pursuit, that we'd want that more than anything, and that our pursuit of rational understandings is also merely an encouragement and an enjoyment. We know we have things unseen. We know that we can only be changed. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.